Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are joined by Dr. Garrett Choby, and we'll be discussing fungal rhinosinusitis. Dr. Choby, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. I first just want to say that we'll spend a lot of our time talking about acute invasive fungal sinusitis, but there are a couple other topics that we could probably touch on really quickly here. Would you mind first just starting uh, with a little bit of an explanation of the different types of uh, fungal sinusitis? Sure. This is a, a fairly broad topic. Again, we'll focus mostly today on invasive fungal sinusitis. But when you think about this in a larger scale, there's both uh, non-invasive and invasive forms of sinus fungal sinusitis. Um, most often described, there are three forms of non-invasive fungal sinusitis. The one we see most commonly is the fungal ball or the mycetoma. Allergic fungal is another version uh, of the disease process more common in the American South. And then lastly, there's an unusual form called uh, saprophytic fungal uh, sinusitis, which is pretty unusual. And then with our invasive fungal rhinosinusitis species, there's both the acute invasive as well as the chronic invasive, uh, which is a little bit more rare. And lastly, there, there's an unusual one that we don't see very often called uh, chronic granulomatous invasive, which again is more commonly seen in other countries like uh, the Middle East and Africa and less so in the United States. And we'll not, we won't focus on the non-invasive uh, today so much. Can you just briefly tell us about chronic invasive fungal sinusitis? Sure. Uh, chronic invasive uh, is a bit different than acute invasive in the sense that it usually has been gone for a long period of time, as its name implies, most commonly described as at least three months or more. And these patients are usually more immunocompetent than those folks who get acute invasive. Perhaps someone who has uh, diabetes that's fairly well controlled or a low-grade leukemia or one of those kind of things. And they do get uh, an invasive fungal process, but it, it's a very slowly progressive thing. They may not present to them are more advanced with things like uh, orbital findings or a cranial neuropathy. But that's more unusual, uh, and it's just more of an indolent, slowly progressive kind of thing. So let's move on now to um, the bigger topic here, the acute invasive fungal sinusitis. Can you tell us how a patient typically presents with this process? In this disease process, these patients are uniformly immunocompromised patients. Most commonly, they have uh, either poorly controlled diabetes or a hematologic malignancy. Other scenarios exist, like uh, long-term heavy uh, steroid use, et cetera. But more commonly, it's a poorly controlled diabetic or someone with uh, something like acute uh, leukemia uh, when they present. Usually, it's when they're uh, undergoing chemotherapy or are in things like a, a DKA crisis. And they present with things like uh, neurologic findings, unilateral uh, facial swelling, edema, or other symptoms of, of uh, sinusitis. Now, I do want to talk a little bit more about presenting symptoms because as a resident, this can sometimes be confusing uh, when we get consulted for this. How would you describe the classic presenting symptoms for acute invasive fungal sinusitis when you get this kind of call? It can be challenging because there can be a fairly broad set of symptoms that can exist. However, things that are more commonly associated with this are uh, a patient who is quite immunocompromised admitted, again, for something like uh, induction chemotherapy, and they all of a sudden out of the blue get progressive symptoms of sinusitis. That can be congestion, nasal blockage, pain in one side of the face, and then commonly a neurologic symptom or an orbital symptom can also manifest itself. And what kind of symptoms would that be? Certainly things like... Uh, Blurry vision or change in vision, um, inability to look certain directions when uh, certain uh, uh, intraocular muscles are involved, 
or things like numbness in a portion of the face from a trigeminal from a trigeminal involvement would be the things to look for from a neurologic standpoint. And oftentimes these consults are are performed on the inpatient basis because of the acuity of the patient's health. When we first uh, see these patients, how should we evaluate them? What should we be looking for? All of these patients in general deserve a nasal endoscopy, especially if the uh, suspicion is pretty high. This disease in most citations most often involves the middle turbinate, so certainly attention being paid there for things that look like uh, dead tissue, necrotic tissue, black tissue crusting will be fairly classic for an invasive uh, fungal species. It can manifest itself anywhere in the nose, but especially looking at those areas of the middle meatus, middle turbinate, inferior turbinate head are good areas to look on your endoscopy. And when we move on to pathophysiology, what exactly is invasive fungal sinusitis? This disease typically involves one of two species of fungus. The first is aspergillosis, and the second one is uh, mucormycosis. As a matter of fact, this disease used to loosely be called mucormycosis, uh, just as a sort of a slang term, if you will. The unique thing about these fungal species in immunocompromised patients is that they actually will invade blood vessels called angioinvasion. And this leads to ischemia, just like a heart attack of the tissue, if you will, which quickly then leads to tissue death, pain, necrosis, crusting, et cetera. And this might go without saying, but we like to talk about the natural history of disease. What happens if we just don't treat this? This is, without treatment, a universally fatal disease. Uh, So this is a rapidly progressive disease. It can progress over hours to a few days, especially, again, in these very immunocompromised patients, uh, and will quickly lead to death if untreated. And what else should we consider on our differential diagnosis when we're consulted for these patients? The first thing I would mention in in those inpatients, as you mentioned earlier, Jason, is that this could be a routine sinusitis, a bacterial sinusitis, viral sinusitis, or or otherwise. There are some patients who you may see in consultation for this in clinic as well, who maybe are less immunocompromised. And if this destructive process more so involves the anterior nasal septum, other things could be entertained like GPA, uh, formerly known as Wegener's disease. Intranasal drug use like cocaine as well can cause perforations and nasal destruction. And some of these can also have fungal elements superimposed on top of them, which can make a pathologic diagnosis somewhat challenging. The last thing I'll mention is, again, with more extensive midline destruction, you could entertain the possibility of a midline destructive lesion, uh, which is an oncologic destructive process, which can also occur in the nasal cavity. Now, we talked a little bit about... uh what to consider when we first see these patients in terms of physical exam. But can you describe to us the main workup these patients deserve if you have suspicion for invasive fungal sinusitis? The first uh, step up in the workup is that they oftentimes will come to you with imaging studies. A CT scan is easiest and quickest to get, and that's probably the the initial imaging study in most patients. This usually shows nonspecific findings, to be quite honest with you, especially early in the process. As this process becomes later, bony erosion is a, is a fairly typical finding you can see, especially around the orbit and pterygopalatine fossa. Uh, but early on, this may show unilateral involvement or a, an early destruction, which could be uh, a tip-off for you. We'll talk about MRIs here in a few minutes, but if the patient comes to you with or without a CT scan and you perform nasal endoscopy and have a high index of suspicion, a frozen section biopsy is the earliest and quickest way to diagnose this. And when you say biopsy, what are some of the things that we should consider when we're 
thinking about obtaining a biopsy in these patients? The first thing to consider is that uh, during your nasal endoscopy, a fairly pathognomonic uh, sign is that they lack uh, some of the sensation in these areas because, again, the, the nerves have likely been destroyed from the angioinvasive process. So numbing them or analgesia is, is probably less important if it's a true invasive process. Other thing to think about is that, especially in those leukemia patients, they may have significant thrombocytopenia, which can lead to quite a bit of challenge with bleeding during these biopsies. Now, again, if it's really angioinvasive, the blood vessels have been destroyed and there's less bleeding associated with it. But if it's more questionable, bleeding can be a significant source of uh, consternation for the uh, junior resident who's on consult service. Fair enough. Now you mentioned MRI. What we're getting around, what we're getting to here, is that this is a very destructive process, and I imagine needs to be dealt with very quickly. Is an MRI worthwhile in this setting? As far as a, a truly diagnostic uh, workup in someone who you have a high suspicion of, an MRI is probably not worth it initially. However, uh, if someone who's more questionable or comes to you from other hospitals who've undergone imaging studies, it frequently is obtained uh, ahead of time by, before you see the patient. It also can be useful in monitoring the patient long-term. So after they've undergone debridement, have gotten therapy and monitoring their progress, it can be a useful uh, adjunct. An MRI scan with contrast is a very good study to investigate for invasive fungal species. It does have a few classic uh, findings. The first of which is that uh, a post-contrast T1 image in routine inflamed mucosa, you'll see a lot of that post-contrast T1 signal in that mucosa. However, if there is angioinvasion and the contrast cannot get to those tissues, then it will subsequently be hypo-intense uh, post-contrast uh, T1 images, which is a fairly pathognomonic sign for the invasive fungal species. Now, we've talked about imaging, workup, and the need for obtaining a biopsy to um, lead to next steps. Before we talk about treatment, are there any ways that you counsel your residents uh, in terms of seeing this patient, these types of patients, that lead you to believe this really isn't invasive fungal? The first thing I would mention is that um, all these patients who are immunocompromised deserve a very high index of suspicion. Again, without treatment, this is a relatively uniformly uh, fatal disease. So uh, I would have a very high index of suspicion to closely monitor these patients. If you have a high index of suspicion, you scope them, the nose looks normal, perhaps consider scoping them again six to 12 hours later to make sure there's not an early progression of this disease process. We actually have um, some data that we presented recently at, at, a, at a meeting which uh, looks at the development of a model to help to predict this that can be useful for both uh, otolaryngologists as well as uh, primary care physicians in, in, some, in some cases. And uh, Dr. Linda Yin was the one really behind this, as well as Dr. Stoken. And what, what we found was that with a, a three or four uh, component model, uh, looking at things like uh, fever or involvement of the pterygopalatine fossil or on imaging studies, as well as things like nasal endoscopy, you can predict pretty well if a patient you're being consulted for for consideration of acute invasive species is in fact going to have uh, that. And that was in, I believe, a 280 person or so study that we completed here. And that data should be uh, published pretty soon. But there are models that can be predicted. However, again, to my junior resident, I would say, have a high index of suspicion and very thoroughly investigate these patients. Yeah, it sounds like this is not something that should be taken lightly if there's any suspicion. Now, moving on to treatment, what are the main treatment modalities once you have a biopsy proven acute invasive fungal sinusitis? 
What I would say, Jason, is that the backbone and the mainstay of treatment is a very thorough surgical debridement. Uh, to put it you know, quite bluntly, this is a surgically managed disease. There are adjuncts, and we'll talk about shortly, things like amphotericin B and other uh, antifungal treatments, which are important to consider. But really, surgeries are mainstay of therapy. Uh, this can be challenging because these patients can be quite sick in many scenarios, again, with things like uh, advanced leukemia and uh, low blood counts. But getting to the operating room uh, soon and performing a derivative is something that should be done on an emergent basis. And do you find that it only takes one time going to the operating room to get this done? No, quite the opposite. Uh, This usually is is an initial uh, large debridement followed by multiple repeat examinations in the operating room and repeat debridements when necessary. This, again, can be a progressive process. So by uh, taking the operating room and even, you know, in some cases clearing negative margins with, uh, with frozen pathology, you will still need to take them back in some cases many times in order to continue to monitor them uh, in, the, in the, their disease progression. And what are some of the medical therapies that can be used uh, with surgical treatment? The, the one that should be probably started up front and very quickly is amphotericin B. That's an IV antifungal therapy. And again, this is, this is usually done in conjunction with many other specialties, including infectious disease, uh, medical oncology, and in many cases, uh, ICU phys- physicians as well. There is a liposomal variant, which is a little bit easier in the kidneys, which is oftentimes uh, considered as well. And this should be instituted um, ASAP uh, whenever possible and usually continued for multiple weeks until the patient gets a good response. Other medical therapies are available, things like voriconazole and posiconazole as well. Those may be reserved for um, outpatient medical therapy for long-term prophylaxis, especially after fungal cultures uh, have returned as well. And there are some nuances to surgical uh, treatment. Can you discuss a little bit about uh, chasing margins and also what you do in orbital involvement, intracranial involvement, that kind of thing? Sure. And these are uh, challenging decisions for for many uh, treating physicians and patients as well. The first thing that I'll mention is that um, areas such as the uh, pterygopalatine fossa are commonly involved. And if you look closer in imaging studies, this is an area that can has a lot of highways to enter it, and fungi can really jump on those highways, things like uh, nerves, uh, V2, uh, things like the SPA as well, and enter into the pterygopalatine fossa. So special attention should be paid here to clearing that fossa, and I usually routine, routinely sample this area in most of my uh, IFS cases. Now, when it comes to the orbit, this can be a challenging scenario. We know from many studies that once the periorbit has been breached with invasive fungal species, that is an uh, independent risk factor for a poor prognosis. And I'll mention as well that even with our current medical and surgical therapy, mortality still reaches about 50% in many series. So it is still a very, uh, very high mortality. But in most studies, there has not been shown to be a survival benefit with orbital exoneration when the orbit is involved. So we do not routinely perform orbital exoneration unless there's an outstanding reason why I think it'd be beneficial in most patients. Dural enhancement is another area that we typically will not resect dura for most cases. And when there's enhancement there, we'll rely mostly on our IV amphotericin therapy to try to address those areas. If there is gross intracranial extension and involvement of the uh, parenchyma of the brain, that's a discussion with my neurosurgical partners whether there's any benefit in doing an open craniotomy or other procedure. Uh, And, you know, if it's that advanced in most cases, the mortality is very high. It takes a pretty in-depth discussion with the patient and their family and, and the treating physicians as well. Yeah, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but uh, can you discuss a little bit more how you talk with patients and families about overall outcomes, complications, and prognosis? 
we have a, a very frank discussion up front of the challenging nature of this disease process. There, there is hope, and there is hope in many scenarios. Some data has shown that reversible disease processes like poorly controlled diabetes may have a better prognosis than things like uh, very advanced leukemia with uh, ongoing chemotherapy. Because ideally, you know, you can reverse the, the blood sugar and then hopefully they have a better immune system to fight it themselves as well. But again, with mortality about 50% in most series, it is a very uh, significant and challenging uh, scenario. So we try to have that really upfront discussion. And we also, quite frankly, have a discussion about the morbidity as well. So if this extends into soft tissue of the face or the palate, you know, the only way to cure this, if the, that's what the patient desires, is to resect those things. So we have many patients who are under, undergoing disfiguring surgeries in, in many scenarios in order to try to best treat this disease process. And that's also something that someone who perhaps is an elderly patient or has other advanced comorbidities may not wish to go through uh, at, the, at the end of their life. Well, I think we've had a pretty good discussion here. Before I summarize this, uh, is there anything you'd like to add or anything we've left out? The, the last thing I'll mention, uh, just to reinforce a few concepts, is that this takes a great multidisciplinary care. So, you know, very trusted colleagues in infectious disease and neurosurgery and oculoplastics and uh, medical oncology all play a role in this disease process. And, and I would mention that if you're going to go after this thing with, with a goal of curing or, or limiting the destruction of this disease process, you must be aggressive, and you must be aggressive early and often. Well, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Uh, Chobi. Uh, I will just do a s quick summary here. Um, so acute invasive fungal sinusitis is a serious disease that most commonly affects severely immunocompromised patients. Uh, presenting symptoms are often things like facial pain, rhinorrhea, possible facial numbness, or orbital symptoms. Workup includes imaging, but biopsy is what's ultimately required for the official diagnosis, and treatment requires quick and aggressive local debridement and IV uh, antifungals. And as you said, prognosis is generally not great with up to a 50% mortality rate, though early treatment can actually be beneficial for this patient subset. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I appreciate the time. Well, it's about time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, we'll end with some questions. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds to give you the time to pause or simply think about the answer on your own, and then I'll give the answer. The first question is, what are the classic presenting symptoms for invasive fungal rhinosinusitis? The most classic presenting symptoms for this disease are sinus symptoms such as rhinorrhea and congestion, but it should also include facial pain, numbness, possible orbital symptoms such as diplopia or blurry vision, and fever should also be considered in these patients as well. The next question is, what is the most classic MRI finding in patients with acute invasive fungal rhinosinusitis? While not all patients will present with an MRI and there might, always be, might not always be time to obtain an MRI, the classic sign due to angioinvasion is a hypointensity with T1 with contrast. And that happens because the blood vessels have been invaded and the contrast is not taken up into the affected tissue. And for our final question, what is the treatment for this disease and is there survival benefit to orbital exoneration? 
The treatment for this disease is early and aggressive surgical debridement if cure is the desired outcome for the patient. Additionally, IV antifungals are required and should be given in conjunction with your infectious disease colleagues. And finally, once the orbit has been breached, orbital exoneration has not been shown to be beneficial in terms of survival. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.